I said this last week at the university chapel, but uh, it's always better when the students are back. It, it's not that the staff and the faculty aren't a lot of fun when you're gone. Well, it's a lot more fun when you're here, and it's a lot better, because this is why we do what we do, and uh, it's great. Uh, there's some interesting things that have happened while you were away. Uh, we have a couple of our professors who have facial hair now. Which I think is a marvelous thing, Dr. Reynolds. Could you stand and model for us? Uh, now just stay. Uh, and uh, the lovely Dr. Noel has uh, also grown a beard recently. Do you want to stand up and model for us? <laughs> oh yeah, right, yeah. He's trying to be like me, so. Years ago, um, I was speaking at a conference for the Salvation Army. Uh, it was the first time that they'd brought all of their national staff, all their staff together, both the people who worked in churches and the people who worked in the justice ministries, things that they do. And, and there, were two, there were myself and, and, a, and a woman who I just think is one of the best Canadian theologians, the best Christian minds, a woman named Dr. Mary Jo Letty. Uh, it was another one of those intimidating moments for me where I was on the platform with someone who I absolutely worshipped and, and was was wishing that I wasn't even speaking and, and that I could just uh, sit and listen to her. It was just after September 11th and all of these people had come and, and people were still talking about that day when the planes went into the World Trade Center. And, and if you were around then, uh, if you remember it, many people, I figured most of you were, um, <laughs> It was a weird time because there was a sense that it, it assaulted, uh, especially if you were uh, you met you met with Americans. Uh, it was something that they had never ever conceived of in their minds, and 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 so it, it literally this terrorism had just assaulted their sensibilities. Uh, people were reeling from the shock of it, and then she made a statement in this conference, which haunts me to this day. And, and continues with me, I've never forgotten it. She stood up one day and she said, it was kind of a get over it. And then she said this. She was a little bit more compassionate than get over it. But, uh, and then she said this. The future belongs to those who have nothing to lose. Let me say it again. The future belongs to those who have nothing to lose. I thought about that an awful lot over Christmas, uh, especially as we were singing carols on peace on earth, goodwill to all people. And as I said to the chapel last week of the university, all the time we were singing those Christmas carols, there were these events around the world that depicted how incredibly broken, how evil, and how sinful our world really is. Twenty children 
and six adults were killed in Connecticut. A man sets fire to a suburban house and then goes up onto a hill as the fire trucks come and starts to pick off the fireworkers with his assault rifle. The Syrian government continues to kill innocent citizens. And a 23-year-old woman steps onto a bus in New Delhi, India. She's not allowed off. She's accosted. She's raped numerous times before she's thrown off the bus and left naked on the street. A terrorist throws a grenade into a church meeting in Kenya, uh, killing a number of people. And a mother kills her little child on New Year's Eve here in Greater Toronto. I mean, surely, coming into this year of 2013, we must acknowledge the desperateness of our world. One writer put it this way as he described our world almost decades before. Loosed from the moorings that held life together, he says, many are now adrift. They have thrown overboard the chart, the compass, the steering wheel, and the consciousness of God-inspired direction. They're free from everything. Everything except the rocks and the storms and the insufferable inanity of being tossed from wave to wave of their meaningless emotion and reactions. And our hearts cry, we need a way out. We need a way out. And that's why I decided to get us to look in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you might turn there. I'm not promising we're going to get through them all today. They are, as E. Stanley Jones said many years ago, these words are like what he calls the Christian manifesto of a different way to live. They are, in Letty's words, the way of living life as if there is nothing to lose. These beatitudes are a frontal challenge by Jesus to almost everything we assume life and living are to be about. They challenge the ways we go about life and the foundations that we try to build on. They call for us to live a much more radical way of living. So radical that as David Bosch once wrote, we have spent the last 2,000 years since Jesus tried to explain this to the people that the Beatitudes do not apply to us today. They're just really nice words. These revolutionary words that begin with this foundational word Blessed, or depending on what church you grew up, blessed. Blessed, blessed. In the Greek, the word is makarios. It's always hard to do pronunciation of Greek or Hebrew words, so I'm just, I'm just going to wade in, and all of the biblical scholars here can tell me where I said it wrong. We translate that in the Greek oftentimes fortunate or happy. Uh, some people would say in a privileged position, 
But the nuance of the Greek language, as nuanced as it is, somehow it just doesn't capture what I think Jesus means. Jesus means something much deeper, and it's captured in the Hebrew. Years ago when I was at Fuller, the Greek scholar Bruce Metzger came uh, to teach for a week. At that time, we had to take two years of Greek and two years of Hebrew, and most of us were dying doing that. Uh, even us who wanted to be New Testament scholars, we who wanted that. And one of my friends decided that he would ask the obvious question of Dr. Metzger, who was a Greek scholar. Uh, and he did, in an open forum one day, stood up in the meeting and said, Dr. Metzger, because what he really wanted Dr. Metzger to say was, don't waste your time on Hebrew, study Greek. So he said, Dr. Metzger, of the two biblical languages, and then he said, that we're forced to study here at Fuller. If we could only study one, which one should we study? I still remember his answer, because my friend was devastated. He said Hebrew. He said the New Testament writers, they wrote in Greek, but they thought like Hebrews. These are two, that's an important understanding when you look at this word blessed. Because the two major words in the Hebrew that are used for blessed are barach, which means to talk about the blessings oftentimes that come from God. But most scholars believe that the other words are what frames the Beatitudes meaning of the word blessed. And that is the word, and this is the way that I caught... Uh, I caught one of our Old Testament professors in the washroom and asked him to translate this. <laughs> and I'm going to say it wrong. Asheray. Is that right? Asheray, thank you. Asheray. That was the person I caught in the washroom. <laughs> I won't say where we were. <laughs> But it's this idea that of the blessings that come from action, that, that, that come because of something we do, and, and getting so in touch with this God that the blessing of living in his way grounds us. It's a great word, if I could pronounce it. If you're, if you're confounded and surrounded by confusing paths and ways and messages, how do you find the way to go? And this is much of what most spiritual searches are today. A seeking of a path. A way of shaping our life so that it makes sense. And the Beatitudes call us to put that path in God. The proverb says, Blessed is the person who finds wisdom, for his ways are pleasant and his paths are peace. When you find this path, when you live it out, you are blessed. You are grounded. You are content. No wonder the great psalm of the Hebrews, Psalm 1, reads like this. Listen to this. Blessed is the man or woman who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his or her delight is in the law of the Lord. Henry Nouwen puts it this way. When we understand the Old Testament background for the word blessed, 
we can make the deepest sort of sense of the Beatitudes. Jesus has not only drawn together a poetic tour de force, but this is also something profoundly realistic and significant in each of the apparent strange uses of this word, which sometimes gets translated happy. It seems strange by any ordinary standard to say that one who is profoundly thirsty or one who mourns now and says, or one who is persecuted should be happy or blessed. But Jesus is telling us that we are on the right path when we know of our own hunger, when we're sensitive to sorrow, and when our way of truth is under attack. In fact, now and says, Jesus teaches that in the deepest sense, the nature of happiness is to be on that very path. Asire, blessed, is a state of being. It's a place. It's an attitude. It's an embracing of values from which we live. Living life as it is, not insensitive to the circumstances, but to live in a certain path no matter what the circumstances are. And that word is blessed. That ultimately, fulfillment, contentment, groundedness, even in the midst of persecution, comes when we're in touch with God. The Beatitudes that follow are like attitudes in this pathway. They invite us into a journey, a long path toward a deeper place, a radically revolutionary place of frameworks. And ultimately, they lead us to freedom, but they take a long time to get there. There's this wonderful scene in the 1999 version movie of Jesus, I don't know if you, there's so many, but this is one. It's one of the, the films actually that I like. And Jesus is kind of a more raw person in it. And, and he's walking through this marketplace and he encounters Mary Magdalene. And there's this, it's the first time they've met. And there's this short kind of interaction where Jesus says as he begins to leave finally after the conversation, he looks over at her as he's leaving and he says, come, follow me. And Mary, with, it's in a wonderful moment, with this strange indignation, defiantly looks at him and says, I am free. I follow no man. And then Jesus stops and he looks back and he says quietly, You're not free, but you could be. You're not free, but you could be. You can be free, and God can make you so. But it takes, as John Calvin said, a teachable frame. I know for all of you that think I'm a Wesleyan Arminian that I'm quoting John Calvin, you must be just about falling off of your seats. But it's a wonderful thing that Calvin says. He's, he talks about this teachable frame that opens us up to actively living the way. Isn't that wonderful? To actively living the way. 
One of my favorite books is The Velveteen Rabbit. Some of you are looking back at the clock. We're okay. Because in it, if you know the book, at one point, this old skin horse starts talking to the Velveteen Rabbit, and the Velveteen Rabbit wants to talk to him about what is real. And they've been talking about this for a while, and at one point, the rabbit says, What's real? Asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came to tidy the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside of you and stick out handles? Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's the things that happen to you when a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you. Then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, says the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you're real, though, it doesn't matter if it hurts. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up or, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you're real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. I suppose you're real, said the rabbit. Then he wished he had not said it. He thought the skin horse might be a little sensitive. But the skin horse only smiled. The boy's uncle made me real. That was a great many years ago. But once you were real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. The rabbit sighed. He thought it would be a long time before this magic called real happened to him. He longed to become real, to know what it felt like. And yet the idea of growing shabby and losing his eyes and whiskers was rather sad. He wished that he could become it without these uncomfortable things happening to him. You can be free. And God can make you so. But it takes a lot of time. It takes a discipline of teachable frames that are shaped out of the Beatitudes. And on that way, you will become more real more blessed. I love the fact that the early Christians were called people of the way. I wonder if the early Christians being called people of the way should be something that we should recapture for ourselves. Rather than defining ourselves as evangelicals, 
maybe we should just say we're people of the way. We're people of the way of Jesus. At an international conference for higher theological education a number of years ago, theologians and scholars and teachers came together to discuss how Christians could speak to the needs of the world. And at the conference in those days, this is when apartheid was still happening in South Africa, there were black and white scholars from various segregated seminaries in South Africa. And naturally, in that time when it was, they began to talk about the issues of apartheid and all of the tensions of racism over one evening and about the evil and the brokenness and the chaos in the world and in their country. And one scholar, a white dean of a seminary, made a passionate plea for patience and made a rationalization for the country that he lived in. At one point with pain, he cried out, I must stand with my people. Immediately, a black scholar stood up and with strength and with power, yet quietly, he spoke. I too have a people, he said, and I must stand with my people, and I am ready to die with my people, but I have a Lord. And I will stand with my Lord against my people. Impact was profound. Tears flowed that night because with quiet simplicity, this scholar described what it means to be a Christian who is blessed in a dark and a distorted world. That's right. A dark and distorted world. A world that so often we want to hide from or wish would be profoundly different, but twisted, distorted, and messy all the same. We are a people of the way. We are the people of the path. We are the blessed. And we live in a world that is in need of people who want to be real. We are in need of a people of way. Let's pray. With wonder, you call us to a way of living, to an upside-down kingdom, to a reign in our lives around values that are so, so different. And you promise us in these Beatitudes that if we walk this way, we will not always be understood. Help us on that path. Help us on that journey to be real. Amen. Go with God.